Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. Those of you that are joining us for the first time uh, this morning or maybe after a long while, uh, this past fall we uh, launched into a new study uh, through the book of Romans. And uh, we have arrived at chapter 2. So it took us a little while to get there, but uh, now we're making some headway. We're out of the first chapter and... uh, uh, we hope we'll start clipping along here. Um, probably not. But we'll give it our best shot. Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 16 because that is really the next section uh, that all goes together. Really, all of chapter 2 goes together, but let's just focus in on the first 16 verses. Paul writes, Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively asking, accusing, or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Father, thank you that we can get back into this great letter today, and as we make this transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2, I pray that your spirit would help us to understand this important segue here, and who now Paul was addressing, and Father, specifically, I would pray, even as we just sang, that you today would be pleased to melt hard hearts. Hearts that have become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin as they're exposed to your patience, to your kindness, your forbearance, that it would lead to repentance and true heart change. That people would leave here going in a different direction for your name's sake and for the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I think one of the most basic concepts in the minds of the majority of mankind is the inevitability and inescapability of divine judgment. Most people, I think if they're honest, will admit that they live their lives knowing that they, along with everyone else in the world, will stand before God someday and have to give an account of their life and be judged accordingly. What that judgment day will actually be like is uncertain to many, but there's a little voice, I think, inside of all of us that constantly tries to convince us that everything's going to turn out okay. A few wishfully but wrongly presume that God is 
too loving to send anyone to hell. After all, it's his job to forgive sin. He's in the business of forgiveness. I think the more common assumption, however, by which um, we try to justify our sinful words and and actions is that God is like a a, a big-hearted professor that we all know and love. We all had one of these in in high school or maybe college um, who, after everyone in the class failed, realized the test was too hard and decided to grade it on a curve so everyone passes. Let's hear it for that big-hearted professor that, 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 that saved our grade, right? And in that case, and we've all probably been in a, a situation like that, we just hope that our score wasn't the lowest, right? <laughs> because the more people who did worse than, than we did, the better we'll make out on the end, the higher the grade we'll get. And so we go through life comparing ourselves to other people that we know or that we read about or hear about in the news, especially those who appear to be worse sinners than we are. And we find false confidence in the thought that it, at least we aren't as bad as they are. At least I'm not a murderer. I'm not a, a stripper. I'm not a drug dealer. And so consequently, we become self-appointed judges who end up trying to play God by judging other people's sins. And that's just natural for all of us. We're we're critical by nature of everyone but ourselves. We we hold others to a, a much higher standard than we hold ourselves. We exaggerate others' faults while we minimize our own. And let's just be honest, it's a, it's a lot easier to see sin in other people's lives than it is to see it in our own eyes. Isn't that true? The things that appear reprehensible in the lives of others seem respectable in our lives. And what we all seem to forget is that we have no business taking on the role of judge because God is the only one true judge. Scripture makes that clear. James chapter 4, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? And so God is the one and only judge, and we know that he is a just judge. In fact, here in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So the assumption is that God is a just judge. In Psalm 9, verse 4, it says, you have sat on the throne judging righteously. And then it goes on in verse 8 to say, and God will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity or with fairness. In other words, you're never going to get a raw deal from God. He's always going to treat you right. But what we need to understand is that God doesn't grade us on a curve. Never has, never will. In fact, he judges all of us the same. And we've all failed to live up to his standard of perfection. In other words, a perfect grade, a spiritual 4.0. And by the way, that's impossible. You say, well, I I think I've come pretty close. Well, yeah, compared to who? Or compared to what? See, the standard is not other people, but God's truth as revealed in his word and lived out by his son, Jesus. That's the standard. So start comparing yourself to God's word and start comparing yourself to Jesus and then see how you do. Starts looking more like an F than a 4.0. See, it was Jesus who confronted the hypocrisy of those who tried to judge other sins without acknowledging their own. But turn back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and this is the uh, classic text Uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, and here Jesus addressed this whole idea of judging others. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, you're familiar with this text, I'm sure. It says, do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And then he presents a, what I think was a, meant to be a humorous picture. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, this passage is very self-explanatory. We're so quick to notice the speck of sawdust in someone else's life, the, the small sin that they're committing, when we've got this log sticking out of our eye, this beam coming out of our eye, and it's really a, a humorous picture, and you're trying to get up close to try to, hey, let me help you with that, with that piece of sawdust, and you're beating the guy upside the head with your own sin, your own log. And it's hypocrisy, Jesus said. And, and Jesus reserved his strongest rebukes for the self-righteous. If you remember in the book of Luke, Jesus told that story about the prodigal son, and uh, it was in the context of the Pharisees expressing their hypocrisy in that Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They were being hypocritical. They were being self-righteous, thinking they were holier than that. We're too holy to, to hang around with that kind of group. But look at Jesus. He, he hangs around those guys. That should tell you what kind of guy he is. And so he told this story about the, the prodigal son. And, and it, if you know anything about that story, you know it's not just a story about one son. It's a story about what? Two sons. And yes, the younger brother or son uh, left and squandered his inheritance on loose living and God brought him to the place of repentance, and he came home. He came back to his father and sought his forgiveness. But rather than welcoming him home like his father did, the older brother refused to participate in the celebration. And he had a self-righteous, critical attitude. And his father had to go out and coax him to come in. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And it says he became angry, was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat, so much as a little goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But then this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes and you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. That was really a dialogue intended to be between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the elder brother in that story. And it was as if God the Father was pleading with them to rejoice that here were these tax collectors and, and these sinners who were coming to Christ. You see, self-righteous people make two grave errors. Number one, they underestimate the height of God's standard of righteousness and secondly, they underestimate the depth of their own sin. Granted, none of us are as bad as we could be, but we are all bad enough to deserve God's judgment and die and go to hell. Now, I don't know that I was 
self-righteous when I was growing up, but I grew up in the church and grew up in a Christian home and at an early age committed my life to follow Christ and whenever I had an opportunity to give my testimony, somebody said, hey, why don't you share your testimony? I was a little embarrassed, just being honest, because I thought I had a boring testimony. You know, I'd never killed anybody. I'd never raped anybody. I'd never, you know, sold drugs to anybody. I never did all, you know, it was like I wanted to make something up like, yeah, you know, I killed my, my, my play buddy from the next door and I buried him in the sandbox. He's still there today. You know, to, to make up some gross sin that I had committed that God had saved me from. But I had this story. I was a little kid growing up in a Christian home and at a five-day club, you know, after, after the, you know, the, 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 the wordless book. And they said, if you want to pray to receive Christ, come down. I was seven years old. And, and um, you know, it just seemed kind of boring. But the more I began to study God's word, I recognized that the reason why I thought my testimony was boring is because I had a wrong understanding, or maybe just, I should say, a, a superficial understanding of my own depravity as described in the scriptures. I mean, I was just as bad as everyone else, Either, even though I was a good little Christian kid. According to the Bible, I was hanging off the same cliff as the murderer and the rapist and the drug dealer and the, the stripper and all those people. I was right there looking eye to eye, and God had to show the same grace and the same mercy to haul me out of my sin. Self-righteousness is a very dangerous sin in and of itself. Again, just look, look at Luke chapter 18 for a moment. Again, the, the Pharisees were the epitome of self-righteousness, and Jesus continually confronted them about this. They didn't think they were that bad. They were sort of like me when I was little. I didn't think I was that bad. And so my testimony was boring. Well, look at Luke chapter 18 Verse 9, and Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Jesus left no mystery to who as he was referring to here. This is an unvarnished parable. He just tells it like it is. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector standing here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm the sinner here. I'm the worst sinner I know. Verse 14, I tell you, Jesus said, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. The reason this unrighteous tax collector was declared righteous or justified, made right with God, is because he acknowledged that he was unrighteous. And God gave him what he lacked, his righteousness. On the other hand, the reason why a self-righteous person like this Pharisee can never be justified and will never be justified is because if you think you're good enough on your own, then you don't need Jesus. John Stott said it well in his commentary. He said, that condition of self-righteousness, or in that condition of self-righteousness, they will never come to Christ. For just as we go to the doctor only when we admit that we're ill and cannot cure ourselves, so we will go to Christ only when we admit that we're guilty sinners and cannot save ourselves. And that, my friends, was Paul's point in this opening section of his letter to the saints in Rome. 
His goal was to convince them and us that we're all guilty sinners who lack the righteousness that God requires to be acceptable to Him. Hopefully you saved uh, that little outline that I gave you at the beginning of our study like this, and we've got them on the back tables if you um, lost yours or um, don't have one. But, but let me just encourage you to look back at that quickly. This is a, we're calling it a roadmap for Romans. This is our outline. This is what we're following here. And uh, we looked, uh, first of all, at the introduction uh, of the, the gospel or the, this, this letter in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. But uh, then, then we went into the first main section, which we called condemnation or the lack of righteousness. And from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul set out to prove that we were all unrighteous, that we are all under condemnation. And he began in chapter 1, as we studied in verses 18 through 32, talking about how the Gentiles are, are guilty. Now he turns in chapter 2 and, and also into chapter 3 to prove that the Jews are guilty. It's not just the Gentiles who are guilty, the Jews are guilty. And then he summarizes his thoughts there in the end of chapter 3, or in the middle of chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, and just says, guess what? The Gentiles are guilty, the Jews are guilty, that means what? We're all guilty. Because you can't, there's no other category of human being. You're either a Gentile or you're a Jew. You're either a Jew or a non-Jew. And if we're both guilty, we're all guilty. We're all in the same boat. And so that's just a, a, a picture of where we're at here. Um, we're moving to that second point under the condemnation of lack of righteousness. The Jews are guilty. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, the climax of Paul's introduction was his statement of passion and purpose for why he wrote this letter to the churches in Rome. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And we said that rather than immediately explaining how the righteousness of God is revealed, it seems like that's where he's headed all of a sudden he turns the corner and he focuses instead on why the righteousness of God must be revealed because man is unrighteous and under God's wrath. And so again, verses, verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20 describe our unrighteousness or our lack of righteousness. Why we need God's righteousness. And as we studied, he began in verses 18 to 32 by giving the most graphic description, I think, in the entire Bible of God's wrath against man's wickedness. Simply put, God is justifiably angry at those who reject his clear revelation of himself and will punish them accordingly. And while God's righteous rage, as we called it, will be unleashed in full at the end of the world, it is being revealed right now, presently, in that God is giving those who suppress the truth about him over to more and more sin. And we saw how idolatry leads to sexual morality, which leads to homosexuality, which leads to total insanity. And Paul summarized this section in verse 32, Romans chapter 1, verse 32, he says, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, therefore, he connects what he just said with what he's about to say. And I think in his mind, Paul knew that after hearing his damning diagnosis of the plight of pagan people, there would be those who 
would offer a hearty amen. Amen, Paul. In fact, there were several here in our own church who, who went out of their way to tell me after the last message of Romans 1 how much they enjoyed that and they just wanted to stand up and say amen. Which isn't a bad thing. That's a good thing. But I wonder how many of us left here feeling better about ourselves since we don't practice any of these despicable things nor do we approve of this kind of sinful behavior I think it would be very easy for us to to have a critical condescending judgmental attitude and look down our noses with this air of self-righteous superiority at all the, the wicked immoral people in our world who deserve to be judged by God Well, that's exactly how Paul anticipated that some of his readers would respond. And he wanted them to know right away that their disapproval of all the things he had just uh, mentioned or, 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 uh, in, in chapter 1 didn't put them in the clear. In fact, it was the exact opposite. It actually confirmed that they deserved the same judgment, if not more, since they knew God's righteous standards that those who do these things are worthy of death and hell. In other words, those who have been exposed to the truth of God's word have a greater degree of accountability. And if we continue to sin, then we're even more guilty than those who've never heard the truth of God's word before. Now, commentators don't all agree as to who Paul was addressing in these verses. Some say that Paul was referring to a, a moral, to, to just to moral religious people in general. Others believe that Paul specifically had the Jews in mind. In fact, he actually says in verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, so he's obviously thinking about the Jews and talking to the Jews, I would say in light of the contrast between the Jews and Gentiles that Paul makes throughout this entire letter, as I pointed out in the introduction, it, it seems to me that he was specifically addressing the, the Jews here. But in principle, what he said to the Jews and about the Jews generally applies to all moralists. And, and we say, well, who's a moralist? Well, a moralist is someone who has, has high ethical standards they, they live a moral lifestyle, but they've never been truly born again. Why? Because they're trusting in their own self-righteousness. You know people like that. You may be a person like that. You, you have high ethical standards. You, you live a, a, a moral, upstanding life, but you've never been truly saved. And in fact, you, you pride yourself in your goodness, in your righteousness, that you're a, you're, you're a pretty good guy, you're a pretty good gal. You've never done all those other things that so many other people do. Look at Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. This is where Paul expresses his brokenheartedness over his fellow Jews who just didn't get it. They, they were still like the Pharisees, self-righteous. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Oh, I long that my fellow Jews would be saved, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They're, they're very zealous for God. They're passionate about spiritual things and, and religious things, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now listen to this, verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, I'm good. I've got this. I've got enough righteousness in and of myself. I don't need God's righteousness. And so back to Romans chapter 2, I believe Paul 
was making a transition from the unrighteous, the, those who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, to the self-righteous. Don't miss that. That's key to us understanding this passage. He's transitioning from talking about unrighteous people to now, let me talk about self-righteous people. Or as someone has said, well, his, his focus switched from the I don't know righteousness, or I don't know, I, I didn't know, you can't hold me accountable to I'm not as bad as you righteousness. I'm not as bad as those guys, so I'm okay. See, that's where most of us, hey, I didn't know, so I'm good, or I wasn't as bad as him, so I'm, I'm good. See, the Jews considered themselves far more righteous than the rest of the Gentile world. In fact, they called Gentiles what? Dogs. Sorry, Fido, Fifi, whatever you call your dog, right? It was just the lowest thing, life form they could think of. They're just dogs. And they wrongly assumed, the Jews wrongly assumed that because of their national and religious heritage as God's chosen people, that they were exempt from God's judgment. That they had to get out of hell free card. In fact, interesting, I didn't know this, but in, 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 in uh, the history of the Jewish nation, there were many who actually believed that Abraham sits at the gates of hell and does not permit a circumcised Israelite to enter there. He's just there. He, he, won't, he won't let it happen. You can't go to hell. If you've been circumcised as a Jew, uh, you can't go to hell because Abraham will prevent it. Well, that sounds a little mystical, I'm sure, to most of us. But it's not too far off of where we're at in that I think some church-going people today assume a similar thing, that just because they were born into a Christian family or because they attend church, or they're a member of a church, they've been baptized, they sing in the choir, they serve on the committee, they, you name it, they live a respectable life. That makes them right with God and exempt from his wrath. There may be some of you sitting in here this morning that, that are feeling good about yourself because of you kind of can check all those boxes. See, Paul wanted the Jews to know and you to know that because they had failed to live out the truth that they had been given by God in the law, they were just as guilty as the Gentiles. Chapter 3, verse 9, he just gets finally down to saying it. What then? Are we better than they? Paul was a Jew. Are we as Jews better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. We are all under sin. God's judgment, you all deserve to die and go to hell. So being a Jew didn't mean that, that they would be spared from God's judgment. They were under God's condemnation alongside everyone else. Hey, listen, we're all in the same boat. That's his point. And from an evangelistic perspective, if you remember, I said that this is really a kind of a missionary support letter. At the end of the day, Paul was writing this to the churches in Rome saying, hey guys, I can't wait to see you, but I'm really headed to Spain. I want to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth where, where no man has ever preached the gospel. And so I need your help. I need your support. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul was saying, I want to preach the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And so he goes on to provide evidence that they both needed to hear the gospel. They both needed to be saved. Why? Because they were both under God's wrath. And they needed to be rescued from God's wrath. They were equally guilty. And so coming down to our text here, we need to understand that even though we all may not sin, with the same frequency or with, to the same depth of depravity. We are all under God's wrath and can only be delivered from that by God's righteousness. But before Paul presented how 
that all happens, how we can receive the righteousness of God and have a right standing before God. He wanted to make sure that his readers and we understood God's just judgment of all mankind. So this passage, uh, really chapter 2 of Romans, is all about the judgment of God. Sorry to wreck your morning, but that's what this is all about. This is about the judgment of God and specifically how a righteous God will judge unrighteous sinners like you and like me. And so how I wanted to break this, this text down, these verses down, is just to simply say that Paul here explained four standards, four standards by which God will impartially judge every person. The first standard is, in verses 1 through 5, that God's judgment is based on knowledge. God's judgment is based on knowledge. Notice he says, therefore, you have no excuse. By the way, all that other stuff that we just talked about, that was explaining the therefore. Okay? That's a very important transition. So he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Does that sound familiar? It should because that's the same verdict that Paul pronounced on the unrighteous in chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invincible attributes, his eternal powers, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without what? Excuse. Guess what? Same applies to you. You're without excuse too. How do you know that? why, Why would Paul say that? He says, well, every one of you who passes judgment... For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, God's judgment is inescapable. We will all have to face it. The question is, will we face it with or without Jesus? And so Paul's saying, listen, just because you, you, you've not indulged in the perversions described in the previous chapter, the fact that you're judging those that have proves that you know it's wrong to do those things, and whether you realize it or not, you're actually condemning yourself. And Paul was just reiterating Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, which was intended to unmask that hypocrisy that you, you know, there you are trying to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. You got a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. Someone said this, it is all too easy to be indignant at other people's sins and indulgent of our own. Isn't that true? It is so easy to be indignant at other people's sins and indulgent of our own. He says, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. It's the the old saying, whenever you point your finger at someone else, you have what? Three fingers pointing right back at you. In fact, the Jews had an account from their history that is, I think, a classic illustration of this, this concept of when you judge someone else, you're actually condemning Yourself, if you remember the story of, of David and Nathan back in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12, and uh, you know the story as uh, David, the king of Israel, um, got one of his own mighty men's wives pregnant and uh, had to try to cover up that sin, and so he ended up having to murder Uriah and uh, So he was guilty of adultery, he was guilty of murder, but he was also guilty of hypocrisy. We don't often think about that when it comes to that that sin that David committed, but in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after a year of covering up this sin, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said, there are two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man and was unwilling to take from his own flock for his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And here it is. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who, does, who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And in condemning that person, whoever that was that Nathan was talking about, or judging him, he was actually condemning and judging himself. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. That story's about you, David. That, that was you who did that. He, he had practiced the same things. As that story, the guy in that story, he had done the same exact thing. And so, again, Paul was addressing here those who maybe outwardly appear to be leading decent, respectable lives, but who are guilty of overlooking or excusing or covering their own private sins. I was discussing this this passage here and really this transition between chapter 1 and 2 with with a guy in our church, and we were talking about that one of the ways I think we, we act like hypocrites is by decrying certain sins in public when we're in conversation with people at church, at, at work, and, but then we go home and we watch the very same things on TV. Or we pay money to go to the movies that, that glamorize the, the same sins that we seem to be so uptight about. It's hypocrisy. But the fact that we speak out about those things is because we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice those things. And we have the knowledge of that truth. We know that. And so therefore we have greater accountability. We know better. Look at verse 3, but do you, choose, do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Who is this guy? Who is this old man? All of a sudden, Paul introduces this imaginary character and engages him in, in dialogue. Well, this is what was referred to back in Paul's day, and it was a Greek writing device known as a diatribe where you would anticipate questions that your hearers would be asking themselves and you would, you would respond to them. I was very much helped by um, Douglas Moo, who is really a, one of the experts, known as one of the experts on the book of Romans. Let me just read for you what he said, because I thought this was very helpful regarding this whole idea, because we're going to see it uh, a number of times in, in the future, particularly in chapter 9, this whole diatribe kind of debate, devil's advocate, if you will, kind of approach. He said this, by the time Paul wrote Romans, he had been preaching the gospel for over 20 years. He knew how people would react to his teaching and what questions they were likely to raise. As he wrote about the gospel to the Roman Christians, Paul used this experience to structure his presentation. He therefore frequently pauses to ask questions about and raise objections to what he has just taught. The transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2 reveals just this kind of circumstance. Paul was well accustomed to preaching about the sinfulness of all human beings based on natural revelation. As he did so, he was familiar with people in the crowd who would be quite eager to join in his condemnation and pride themselves as superior to the idolaters and fornicators whom he was raking over the coals. And so, like any good writer, Paul uses this literary device, it says, of his own day to communicate effectively with his readers. It's called a diatribe. More a style than a genre, a diatribe usually takes the form of a dialogue using questions and answers to make its points. The writer enters into a discussion with a fictional opponent as a way of advancing his or own argument. As the English word yourself 
Uh, Paul uses this style in the beginning of Romans 2 as the English word yourself toward the end of verse 1 reveals Paul is using the second person singular in these verses. This does not indicate that he's singling out one person in the Roman congregation. Rather, he's using the Deatribe style, letting the Roman Christians overhear his fictional discussion with a typical Jew. To be sure, Paul does not come out and explicitly label his discussion partner as a Jew at this point. This is for rhetorical effect as he allows the Jew gradually to self-identify in the accusation that now unfolds. Very well said. So bottom line is, hey, don't think that you're going to escape God's judgment. The only way to escape God's judgment is to turn away from your sin and and turn to Christ. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That expression there, to think lightly of something, means to think down upon it, to underestimate the value of something or to treat it with contempt, to take it for granted, to take advantage of it even? Do you realize every breath of air that you take, every bite of food that you eat is an expression, is it a reminder of God's goodness and kindness to you on a daily basis? And he's tolerant, it says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance? The the idea here is a divine truce that God has graciously declared between him and us. Rather than destroying us the moment we sin, he mercifully holds back his judgment. The fact that we're all sitting here alive today is an act of God's kindness and mercy because we all deserve to be dead and in hell. God doesn't give us what we deserve, but patiently gives us time to repent. He's patient. This word was used to describe a a powerful ruler who who voluntarily withheld his vengeance on an enemy or or the punishment for a a criminal. The, 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 The punishment was withheld. And we need to understand that God demonstrates his mercy and grace and kindness and patience for long periods of time. Think about the flood. Do you remember how many years it took Noah to build the ark? 120 years. Did it really take him that long to build the ark? Or was that God's way of giving that generation the opportunity to repent. I think there was an act of kindness. That was an act of, of mercy. In fact, look at 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where Peter talks about this patience, and he says in 2 Peter 2, 5, did not, uh, did not God spare the ancient world? Or I should say, he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then jump over to chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3. He picks up this idea of the flood. Verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. In other words, God promised he'd never destroy the world ever again with water, but he didn't say anything about fire. (laughs) And he says, it's kept for the day of judgment and destruction of a godly man, verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. In other words, God, what's taking you so long? No, he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what Paul was saying in Romans, that that it's the kindness of God leads you to repentance, leads you to the place where you recognize 
that the way you're thinking, the way you're living is wrong. And it needs to change. And so repentance, the metanoia in the Greek, is a, is a change of mind. It starts with a change of mind, but it ends up resulting in a change of life. Where you turn away from idols and you turn to God. You turn to Christ, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You see, God's patience is intended to give us more time to repent, not more time to sin. See, that's what some of us do. It's like, oh, I, I, I sinned. I know I sinned, but nothing happened. I guess I can do it again. And, and I do it again and nothing happened. Well, I guess I can just do it again. And then you just keep doing it. And it's like, listen, you are thinking lightly of the riches of his kindness. God is not withholding his judgment to give you more time to sin, go just ha- go have at it. No, he's giving you time to repent. When, when we sin and God doesn't punish us right away, that's not an excuse to keep on sinning. God's kindness, his, his patience should encourage penitence, not, not license. And might I just, just add this, that, that since God is so patient with us when it comes to us repenting from sin and changing and, and growing, shouldn't we extend that same patience and kindness to others who are in the process of repenting and changing and growing? There's nothing more hypocritical, really, than, than when we get impatient with someone who's slow to change and, and, and keeps on committing the same sins over and over again. Have you ever listened to yourself, parents, scolding your children? We're self-righteous Pharisees a lot of times. At least, I'll just speak for myself. There's been times I've heard the, 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 the elder brother or the self-righteous Pharisee come out of my mouth when I'm looking at my kids, and this is when they were younger, of course, saying, I can't believe you did that again. This is basic stuff. How many times have we gone over this? You know better. And I'm hearing myself say that. I'm going, wow, you are really a hypocrite. Because God could be saying the very same thing to you because there's some basic things that you know better. You've gone over this many times before, probably more than your kids ever sinned. You've sinned way more than he has on that. And it's hypocritical. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Rather than repenting, you, you harden your heart. That word stubbornness is the Greek word for where we get our English word sclerosis. As in arterial sclerosis, which means what? The hardening of the, the arteries, right? And, and, and you know, as I do, that the Bible warns Numerous times against the danger of hardening our hearts toward God, becoming unresponsive, insensitive to Him and His Word. Don't harden your hearts. If you hear the Word of the Lord today, do not harden your hearts. He says it over and over and over again. You're hearing the Word of God today. Not my words, you're hearing God's Word today. Do not harden your heart. Don't blow it off. You say, man, I think it's too late. I think my heart has already been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, what's the, what's the key to maintaining or soft or regaining a soft heart? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you in you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He goes on to say, that we should consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ's return, the day of judgment. 
that we need to be encouraging one another. This is the best. Listen, if you've got a hard heart, this is the best place for you to be right here within the walls of the church. Because if God's going to use anything to soften your heart, it's going to be the encouragement of the body of Christ. Obviously, we could mention reading the word of God, prayer, talking to God directly. But Hebrews says, hey, you need the encouragement every week from the body of Christ. And you know what, what, what it's like. You, you, you slip away from the church. You, you, you miss a Sunday, then you miss two Sundays, then you miss a month of Sundays, then you miss half a year of Sundays, and then you feel really like a doofus coming back, and right? I mean, it's embarrassing. What are you going to say? How are you going to answer? Hey, where you been? Right? So you just stay away, and guess what? You know your heart has become hard to spiritual things. And the best way to, to soften it back up again is to get right back in the, in the mix of the body of Christ. And it may not happen the first Sunday you're back, but right? Over time, you can trust that God will use the encouragement of the body of Christ to stimulate you to love and to good deeds. But if you refuse to accept or embrace God's pardon for your sin, what happens, right? God's wrath builds up against you and you'll receive severe judgment in the end. It's like this reservoir that's just building up and building up and building up and building up. And when the dam is let loose, it is going to fly out on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I think that's a reference to the final judgment, the great white throne judgment of unbelievers when the wicked of all times and from all places will be sentenced to hell for all eternity. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20. Verses 10 through 15. I'm sure most of you by now have heard that exactly one month ago today, the beloved R.C. Sproul went home to be with the Lord. He was a great pastor, theologian, professor, reformer, I don't know of anybody who has been used by God more in our generation to promote biblical reform theology than R.C. Sproul. His most well-known work was and will continue to be, I think, his book, The Holiness of God, which if you've not read yet, I highly recommend it. Number one, put it on the top of your reading list for 2018, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And it's really a brilliant exposition of Isaiah 6, where in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. And in fact, the most moving part of R.C.'s memorial service for me, I was watching parts of it on, on, online, live stream, was when Sin Sinclair Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson got up to give the message and simply said, I cannot think of a more appropriate passage to preach from this morning than Isaiah chapter 6. And he began to read that great text and tears filled my eyes because it was like that, that's it. That's the passage that was meant to be for R.C. Sproul's memorial service. It's been years since I read that book, The Holiness of God, but I can still remember very vividly one of his masterful illustrations. And in, in, in honor of his life, his ministry, I want to read it to you in full as I close. Listen carefully to the words of this great teacher, really a, a, just a brilliant professor, if you will, of truth. He said, my favorite illustration of how callous we can become with respect to the mercy, love, and grace of God comes from the second year of my teaching career when I was given the assignment of teaching 250 college freshmen in introductory course on the Old Testament. And so we're talking about here how we become calloused or hardened or how we take lightly the mercy, the love, the grace, the kindness, the tolerance of God. He said, on the first day of the class, I gave the students a syllabus, and I said, you have to write three short-term papers, five pages each. The first one is due September 30th when you come to class, the second one October 30th, and the third one November 30th. 
Make sure that you have them done by the due date because if you don't, unless you're physically confined to the infirmary or in the hospital or unless there's a death in the immediate family, you will get an F on that assignment. Does everybody understand that? That was a pretty tough professor, right? They all said yes. On September 30th, 220, 250, 225 of my students came in with their term papers. There were 25 terrified freshmen who came in trembling. They said, oh, Professor Sproul, we didn't budget our time properly. We haven't made the transition from high school to college the way we should have. Please don't flunk us. Please give us a few more days to get our papers finished. I said, okay, this once, I'll give you a break. I'll let you have three more days to get your papers in, but don't let that happen again. Oh, no, we won't let it happen again, they said. Thank you so, so much. Then came October 30th. This time, 200 students came with their term papers. But 50 students didn't have them, and I asked, where are your papers? They said, well, you know how it is, professor. We're, we're having midterms, and we all had all kinds of assignments for other classes, plus it's homecoming week. We're just running a little behind. Please give us just one more chance. I asked, you, you don't have your papers? Do you remember what I said the last time? I said, don't even think about not having this one on time. And now 50 of you don't have them done. Oh, yes, they said, we know. He said, okay. I'll give you three days to turn into your, in your papers. But this is the last time I extend the due date. Do you know what happened? They started singing spontaneously. We love you, Prof Sproul. Oh, yes, we do. He said, I was the most popular professor on that campus. But then came November 30th. What I would call judgment day. This time... 100 of them came with their term papers, but 150 of them did not. You see the trend here? They were beginning to take advantage of his kindness and take for granted his kindness. He said, I watched them walk in as cool and as casual as they could be. So I said, Johnson, what? He replied, do you have your paper? Ah, oh, don't worry about it, prof. I'll have it for you in a couple of days. I picked up the most dreadful object in a freshman's experience, my little black grade book. I opened it up and I asked, Johnson, you don't have your term paper? He said, no. I said, F. And I wrote that in the grade book. Then I asked Nicholson, do you have your term paper? No, I don't. F. Jenkins, where's your term paper? I don't have it. F. Then he says, out of the midst of this crowd, someone shouted, that's not fair. I turned around and asked, Fitzgerald, was that you who said that? He said, yeah, it's not fair. I asked, uh, weren't you late with your paper last month? Yeah. Okay, Fitzgerald, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you want justice then it's justice you'll get. So I changed his grade from October to an F. When I did that, there was a gasp in the room, and I asked, who else wants justice? He said, I didn't have any other takers. He concludes the story, the illustration, with these words. He said, well, those students had grown accustomed to my grace. The first time they were late with their papers, they were amazed by my grace. The second time, they were no longer surprised. They basically assumed it, but the third time, they demanded it. They had come to believe that grace was an inalienable right, an entitlement they all deserved. He said, I took that occasion to explain to my students, do you know what you did when you said, that's not fair? You confused justice and grace. The minute we think that anybody owes us grace, a bell should go off in our heads to alert us that we're no longer thinking about grace because grace, by definition, is something we don't deserve. It is something we cannot possibly deserve. We have no merit before God, only demerit. If God should ever, ever treat us justly outside of Christ, we would all perish. Are you like the students in R.C. Sproul's 
class. Are you thinking lightly of the kindness, the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience towards you? And if that is you, then because of the stubbornness and unrepentance in your heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the judgment day. Let's pray. Father, this is heavy truth. It's not a subject that we would choose to talk about, to come and listen to even, that this judgment day, that your judgment, your just judgment upon us, but Lord, it's, it's in your word, it's everywhere in your word, and it needs to be a, a, a major emphasis in the gospel message. And we're thankful that that's just part of the gospel, that's the bad news. We're thankful for the good news, that in Christ, we can be rescued from your wrath, because you sent your son to, to take the punishment for our sin to experience your judgment against our sin so that we could be forgiven and made right with you. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has been unrepentant, they know that they're going the wrong direction, they're living their lives in a way that are not pleasing to you, they've rejected Christ as their Lord, as their Master, Lord, that today, as they've been exposed to the riches of your kindness and patience and tolerance with them. Lord, that it would be that kindness that leads them to repentance. It wouldn't be a, a fear of judgment, a fear of wrath. It would just be, be overwhelmed, being overwhelmed by your kindness and your grace and your mercy, and it would just woo them to you, woo them to Christ. I pray you do that for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name.